As everybody probably knows, the CDC just released a report this past year showing that one out of every 88 babies born today will have an autism spectrum disorder. And what's striking to me about this study is not this very high rate, but the fact that 40% of the children in the study were not getting a diagnosis until after age four. This is a very big problem, um, particularly if we look at this old schematic from Connell in 1939. This shows frontal cortex circuitry in newborns, one-month-olds, six-month-olds, and two-year-olds. And you can see that, as Eric Cushain and others mentioned, we're all born with all the neurons we'll ever have, with the exception of in the dentate gyrus. But largely, we have all of our brain cells. They're not particularly well connected up as a newborn. One month, not a lot of local uh, connectivity happening. But around six months to two years, there's a nice exuberance of connections that begins to take place in the frontal lobes. Well, if we're diagnosing autism out here, what we're faced with now is the challenge of trying to positively impact functional connections after they've been largely established. So that, that's a problem. And it's also a problem from the domain of science. If you want to study the early development of autism, you know, examine biomarkers, understand what's going on during early development, how are you going to do it if you can't really even find subjects until age three? So at our autism center here in San Diego, we developed an approach to, to study autism starting at 12 months, what I call the one-year well-baby checkup approach. The rationale behind this approach is that if you administer a broadband screen to all babies when they go to their doctors for the first checkup, you'll catch cases of autism. And the strength of this approach is for screening for autism at every first birthday is that you'll improve the standard of clinical care for all children and it allows for the prospective study of autism starting at the first birthday. It also has a scientific advantage because if you use a broadband screen to the first birthday, you're going to catch not only kids with autism, but you're going to catch kids that have a language delay and a global developmental delay, which helps them, but it's also great scientifically because you can use those groups as, as really important contrast groups to, to understand how the trajectories are similar or different between autism and other disorders during early development. And what's really nice is that you, you have sampling of autism as it occurs in the general population, not just in multiplex families. Because people who are in the field of autism research know that the only way that scientists have historically been able to study early development is with the baby-sibling approach, which essentially means you're a mom, you have a child with autism, you're pregnant, and then scientists will study that second child with autism with the understanding that there'll be around 15 to 20% chance that that second baby will also have autism. But the issue with that is it's incredibly important to do, but it only studies autism as it occurs in multiplex families. And we're not positive yet that the ideologies are identical between babies who come from simplex families versus multiplex families. So how do we do it? We actually use a really simple screening tool called the CSBS Infant Toddler Checklist developed by Amy Weatherby and Barry Present. Super simple, 24 questions, and it asks the parents, do you know if your baby is happy and when your baby is upset? And the parents answer, it takes them five minutes, and there's cutoff scores, and if a baby fails, then they come to our center for evaluation, or they can go somewhere else on evaluation, but we can study them, and we can help them, we can treat them. And as I mentioned, it catches babies who are developmentally delayed, language delayed, as well as ASD, down here at 12 months. They all look very similar, but as they move across in development, their trajectories diverge, and as they get older, 18, 24, 30 months, the kids with autism look very different than the language delay and the developmentally delayed kids. So what do we do? We get these 12-month-olds who fail the screen. They come to our center for research. Uh, one of the things we're doing is we're looking at eye tracking. And the nice thing about eye gaze is, as Dr. Meltzoff mentioned, and lots of people understand, is that from the first days of life, babies are attracted to the human face. They, they love to look at faces. They love to socially interact. 
And this is a landmark study by Gorin in 1975 and replicated by Johnson in 1991. I love this study because what they did was there are these nine-minute-old babies, and uh, mom just gave birth, and a scientist busts into the room with a paddle. <laughs> and the paddle has a face or a scrambled face or a blank, uh, you know, kind of a blank paddle. And then they, they put it in front of the baby, and they track. How, how much time does the baby spend looking at the face versus the scrambled face versus the blank paddle? And even at nine minutes old, babies will spend a longer time looking at the human face or face-like structure. So what if we did this with young kids with autism, let's say 12 months, 15 months? If I gave them a movie, a preferential looking paradigm, where they're seeing something that has kids jumping around, very engaging, or these repetitive shapes, which they might be interested in selectively, uh, are they going to look here or are they going to look there? This is a simple one-minute test that we've researched extensively, and I want to show you how a typical 14-month-old watches this movie with the red dot indicating where the baby's fixating and the size of the dot represents the duration of gaze. So a bigger dot means the baby was staring, essentially. And I call this the geometric preference test for autism. This is a typical 14-month-old baby. looking back and forth at both sides, but he's pretty excited about this side. <laughs> so now this next slide shows, uh, this next movie shows a um, 14-month-old later diagnosed with autism. Actually, 15-month-old. You can see if you can notice any differences in eye gaze patterns. So this is not just an overall you know, phenomenon with this one individual baby. Here's uh, data that we published in archives in, in 2011 with 110 babies. Here are the ASD cases shown in red circles, typical in blue squares, DD contrast group in these, green, in these green triangles. Right here on this side, this shows the percent of time a baby was looking at the geometric patterns. And because it's a preferential looking paradigm, by default, if you're looking at geometric patterns 70% of your time, that means you were looking at the social 30. So you can look on the other side. You can look at any individual baby. So this kid was 55% and 45% in social. So you can see the value for every child. And if I set the threshold at 69%, only the ASD babies prefer geometric patterns at a level of 69% of the time or greater. Typical kids didn't do this. Developmentally delayed kids did not do this. Um, so this test has really good uh, specificity, but you can see the sensitivity. It doesn't catch everybody with autism. So this gets back to the heterogeneity of autism that all the speakers have been discussing. There are some kids with autism that prefer the social images just like everybody else. But you've got this great subgroup that did selectively prefer these geometric patterns. And we were super excited about this study, so we went ahead and made sure that it was present in very young kids, and it was, 15 months, 14 months, 16 months. And then we went and ran lots and lots of subjects. We're now in the process of showing a new, it's actually, we added about 300 cases and combined the sample to have 441 cases. If you use that same threshold, we do have these two kids uh, who have other disorders, they have other delays, not autism, showing uh, preference for geometric patterns, but still the specificity is well over 95% 
largely only ASC kids, not typically developing kids, not DD kids, not even typical siblings of ASC cases, not even the DD siblings of ASC cases. And we even had a couple of kids that we thought were autistic, but eventually, um, by the time they turned three, they no longer met diagnosis. Even those kids were not over the 69% mark. So this, we're, we're really excited because we think it's a robust early marker for autism, which will help get kids into treatment quickly. But eye tracking isn't the only thing that we do at our center. We're also really important. Uh, we're also really excited to look at brain functional organization during the first days of life. This might help us understand how autism is different or similar to typical development. So uh, working with babies is, is uh, really an exciting, interesting challenge. But one thing you can do is called sleep fMRI. It's as the name implies. Uh, we tell the parents, let your baby skip their nap, get them super tired. And we go down to a brain scanner, an MRI scanner. As a baby's sleeping, we gently put them in the scanner, put headphones on, and turn the machine on. And we pump in some sounds while they're sleeping. And we can actually get really robust language cortex activation, which I'll show you in a minute. The great thing about using sleep fMRI, though, is you can capture the earliest stages of development. There's no minimum age. You can do sleep MRI with a one-day-old. Um, it's non-invasive with good spatial resolution. And there's no requirement to hold still. So you can study all levels of functioning. If you look at the autism literature, most of the fMRI, ERP, EEG studies generally sample high-functioning individuals with autism because motion artifacts are pretty severe, and you want to limit that so you, so you get people that are really competent, which you know, is, is good for studying that cross-section of the population, but you know, results may or may not generalize because you're only studying these really high-functioning individuals. So this is nice because you can study everybody. And Dehane Lamberts published a study in Science in 2002 showing that while a baby's asleep, if you, let's say, read the baby a bedtime story, you're getting superior temporal gyrus activation that cuts across all levels of cortex, plantum temporal, superior temporal gyrus, temporal pole. Here's group data of 20 infants. These are functional activation maps. The orange and yellow colors represent regions of the brain that are showing significant activation in response to language. So we were excited because we thought, hey, this is great. We can do this. We can do this with kids with autism. And the nice thing about language is babies are born ready to uh, process language. They're excited by language. By two days old, moons showed that babies prefer to listen to their lang native language over other, other languages. They spend longer listening to alliterative phrases. And they show larger ERP responses to syllables, ba and da, in the left superior temporal gyrus by four months in age. They can't talk, but yet their brain is ready and selectively organizing language differently than other sounds. And here's the superior temporal gyrus right here shown in red. Here's, superior, here's the Sylvian Fisher um, superiorly. And what's nice is that there are also structural asymmetries that we know about. The left hemisphere has enlarged white matter underlying Heschel's gyrus relative to the right. Larger pyramidal neurons on the left relative to the right. Increased contact by afferent fibers left relative to right. And there's increased area measures. So certainly, even um, because most of these studies have been done with adults, you can't say for sure these could be the result of environmental input and lots more language exposure that is causing this left-right asymmetry. But there are actually some studies showing, even in early development, that there are differential responses in left to right that's followed by um, structural asymmetries in left versus right by the time we become adults. And um, Randy Buckner actually published a study with 1,000 normal individuals in PNAS in 2009, and he said that cerebral lateralization is a fundamental property of the human brain and a marker of successful development. It's very robust. So if, we don't, if somebody doesn't show this left dominance pattern for language, that really suggests that there must be some potent factors that are, that are going on to derail this, because left dominance uh, activation for language is, is really robust in humans. So our first study actually was done by Elizabeth Redkay and Eric Crushane and colleagues. And we had babies in a scanner, and we played them this bedtime story. It's time for bed, little goose, little goose. The stars are out and on the loose. 
It's time for bed, little cat, little... That's a forward simple language. One morning very early, before the sun was up, I rose and found the shining dew on every buttercup. But my lady... And then that's more complex speech. That's a little bit in advance of the baby. And then we have a, a contrast for backward speech. Just control for language input. And um, Dr. Redkay and Crochet found lots of, lots of things, but the, the main the take-home finding was there was a really reduced left activation to language in the ASC babies. And when you did a direct comparison of uh, typical versus autism, uh, typical uh, greater than autism is only showing up here on the left side. So there were really no areas of the brain that were equal in autism or greater in autism. Pretty much the typical individuals had much more functional activation on the left uh, relative to autism. So we went ahead, uh, Lisa Eiler, myself, and Eric Crushane did a follow-up study with a much larger sample with a broader age range. We wanted to test the original uh, findings by Elizabeth Redkay. And here is a coronal section showing brain activation. It's, it's uh, radiological, so right and left are reversed. In 40 babies, uh, mean age of 2.1 years, and 40 ASD toddlers, mean age 2.7 years. And this is not just one slice. I'm going to scroll you through the brain, and you can see the nice bilateral activation in the typical kids, but not so much in the ASD kids. And here's the ASD cases. We don't get any left, and we get some on the right. And what's interesting is that if you look at a scatter plot of each individual subject and you take a subtraction of their left activation versus their right activation, in typical kids, you're going to get a positive value because if they have more left and you subtract right, you're going to get something positive. Um, if you have more right than left, you're going to get a negative value. The, the, blue, the blue diamonds represent the typical kids, and the red squares represent the ASC kids. And you can see that there's a correlation with development. Age and months, left activation gets stronger with development, and in autism, it actually gets slightly weaker. They never have a dominance of left, and the little bit they did have sort of goes down with development. So becoming more left lateralized seems to be a, a nice property of normal development, but it's not happening in autism. But language is, uh, as we know from Dr. Meltzoff and other people, language is socially mediated. Babies learn language because they look at your face when they're two months old and they're socially engaged. And social behavior is, is an important component of how we learn language and how we learn social behavior. So we also use sleep fMRI to look at right hemisphere tasks. So social behavior is largely is more right hemisphere dominant, whereas language is more left hemisphere dominant. And we call the baby's name while they're sleeping because we know that reductions in social orienting are one of the red flags for autism. Children with autism very often don't respond to their name. They have a failure to attend to social stimuli early in life. So we wanted to look even beyond the superior temporal gyrus and focus on another part of the brain called the superior temporal sulcus. The superior temporal sulcus has been dubbed the chameleon of the human brain because it's involved in so many things. It's shown here in red, and it's been involved in theory of mind tasks, biological motion, speech perception, face processing, audiovisual integration, and perceptions of gaze. So the SCS shows the greatest response to meaningful stimuli of communicative significance. So it's really kind of the interface between social and language. And so we did a study in progress, 31 ASD babies, 31 typical babies, using a, several conditions. Social orienting condition is we call the baby's name. Language control condition is we just had language. There was no social orienting element to it. And then we had a non-social orienting condition where the baby heard environmental sounds. And here's what this experiment was like. Watch me, Jamie. Watch me. Look, Jamie. Look. That's social orienting, so we're calling no, our name. In a very look out, look out. orienting way. Now we've, now we've block, block, block. taken away the orienting element, it's and it's just a language control. Dog playing dog. Telephone ring, telephone. 
And so here's some, we, we did correction, and then we manually went and found the STS for every single baby, and we masked it. And we took that mask, overlaid it on the baby's functional activation, and counted the number of voxels that were active in response to these three different conditions. So here we have the volume of activated voxels, ASD here, typical here. The green is the social orienting condition, so calling name. Pink is language, and the orange is the environmental sounds. What do you notice? Totally different gradient. The typical babies show the greatest activation to the social orienting sounds, the, the middle to language, and the least amount to environmental sounds. The ASD babies actually had the reverse. For some reason, even during natural sleep, they're having a reduced brain response when you're calling their name, middle to language, but the greatest response to these environmental sounds. So what have we learned? How do we put this all together? So this first study shows that by two years, there's a virtual lack of function responding to social orienting stimuli, particularly in the right temporal cortex. So that's this study. Looking at the right SCS, we're not seeing a lot in autism. Then we combine that with Lisa's study and Elizabeth Redkay's study, and we see that the left SDG is ineffective in autism. Perhaps maybe the right SDG takes over some basic language function. Because remember, in this study, we saw actually right activation in ASD. But that's a problem. If, you're, if the right part of your brain is starting to do some language function, it might be crowding out a cortex that should be involved in social processing. So why does this even happen in the first place? Um, possibly overabundance of neurons drives faulty and noisy long-distance connections that may lead to ineffective functional architecture. We've heard from uh, Dr. Eric Crochet. This has been identified for quite some time. First, he identified this in 2001. It's been replicated by many studies in this meta-analysis. So I bring you back to my original slide. Here's frontal cortex circuitry in autism. Here's mean age of diagnosis nationally. Obviously, in San Diego and L.A. and hotbeds, we're doing better. We're doing earlier. But the average person in America is, is still out here, and that's really not an option. It's not acceptable. What I'd like to do is see, using first-year screening, let's identify here, get them into treatment, and we'll have a better chance of positively impacting brain circuitry moving forward. Thank you for listening, and thank you for all the great funding and collaborators and everybody. Thank you.